book of Acts, chapter 1. We'll read from verse 6 through 11 this morning. The book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of our Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. As was mentioned last week, we are now over halfway through this series on the Apostles' Creed. We've gone kind of over the hump, and now we're heading down the other side. Now, uh, some might think it's our time to coast. I prefer to think we're just picking up steam on this journey through this ancient creed. Now, when we began this journey, I really didn't know what to expect. Now, our goal from the outset was to connect ourselves here at Grace Hill with not only our long history as a church, over 180 years, but we also wanted to feel linked with the saints of old that have for centuries proclaimed these simple truths. Now, the, gospel, the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture. Instead, it is a summarization of Scripture into bite-sized chunks so we can recite it, memorize it, and easily share it with others. There is much truth contained in this creed, but is not all-encompassing. As one author wrote, all Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. While these are all truths that many of us would say that we know well, this exercise has been helpful for me because it has forced me to refocus on these core doctrines of our faith. And as we have recited this creed together, each week the simple phrases become filled with more and more meaning because of the things that we have learned from the Bible each week. These truths are not new. I don't know about you, but I'm sometimes quick to to forget the things and the wonders of the gospel. So I've needed this fresh reminder. And each week I can, with even more confidence, declare what I believe uh, and the things that that are... in this creed, and that we can join saints that have proclaimed this, these great truths for, for centuries. Now, last week, Lucas handled the phrase, um, actually two phrases, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, Jesus went up, and he sat down. Jesus reigns as king, 
Jesus sends the Spirit. Jesus prepares a place for Christians. Jesus rests because the work of his redemption is complete. And Jesus advocates for his own. So in that phrase, for the first time in the creed, there was a tense change for all you grammar junkies. It went from past to present. So up until now, we learned that that Jesus was conceived, was born, suffered, was crucified, died, was buried, descended, rose, and then ascended. But now, he is seated. This is a present reality with all of the benefits that Jesus' reign means for us right now. Now, Today's phrase is, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So here we have yet another tense change from present to future. He will come and will judge. We will focus today on this future reality that, that Jesus will once again come back and how then it should affect our lives today. Uh, let's, let's pray as we continue. Dear Lord, we just uh, thank you for this time that we have to, to gather as a church, to sing praises to you, your name, to rehearse great truths of our faith. And now, Lord, I pray that as we dig into this topic of the second coming of Jesus, that we would see what the, the scriptures teach us clearly, and that we would, um, at the end of this, be even more convinced that you are coming again, and that that should have then effects on then how we live. Lord, I just pray that we would um, think clearly about your word, and Lord, I just pray that you would help me communicate clearly your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. To be human is to be a narrative creature. We learn early on in our lives that good stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We like it when they begin with once upon a time and end with happily ever after. Well, at least that's what most Disney and Hallmark movies end that way. Real life sometimes casts a different reality, does it not? Sometimes when things end, it is painful. The company I co-owned with with my brother was started by my dad after the the end of his dairy career. It grew, we took over, We've had some years of great successes followed by a prolonged downturn in profitability. And the business is now coming to an end. Over the last few weeks, we've had to tell over 20 employees that their employment is coming to an end. That has been very hard. In this church, we have experienced many tearful endings recently with with Daryl and many dear members leaving. Today, we have some long-term Longtime members of this church expressing that this will be their last Sunday worshiping with us. This is painful. This, this hurts. And these are not always happily ever after. Now, the, the temporal aspect of humanity requires us to understand that there is an end to which history is headed and an end to the story as we know it. No matter the worldview, every person alive on earth believes that there is some kind of end coming. Even those who have no belief in God or even in the supernatural see an end to this universe. They assume that the the energy in the cosmos will dissipate into non-energy and everything will fade into oblivion. Or get sucked up into a giant black hole or the earth will be turned into a burning rubble after the mutually assured destruction of nuclear war. 
Every human has some desire to, to know the future, but I've got to be honest with you, if that's what the future is going forward, I'd prefer not to think about it. That is, a huge, that is a future totally devoid of hope, which then leads to living a life filled with seeking instant gratification and only thinking of the here and now. Brothers and sisters, is that the future that awaits us? No. We know with certainty that Jesus is coming again. As we read it a few minutes ago from Acts 1.11, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come down in the, same, in the same way you saw him going to heaven. So he has gone up, he has been seated, and he will come down again. So how I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning is to break down this phrase. First, he will come again, and then to judge the living and the dead. So we will investigate where we see the promise of Jesus' return in the Bible, we will look about when it will happen. Dangerous, I know. We'll, I'll explain. And then we will discuss how he will arrive. We will then switch to the second part of that phrase and talk about judgment. We will investigate who, the live, who is the living and who is the dead. And we will end with different ways that the knowledge of Christ's return must affect our lives right now. So where in the world do we see the promise of Jesus' return in the Bible. When our eyes are tuned to, to, tuned to see it, we will literally see it everywhere throughout the New Testament. The mention of Jesus' second coming is mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. When that, when that is broken down, that is an average of every 25 verses the second coming of Christ is mentioned. It is evident that the people in the early church thought and taught about Jesus' return much more than they thought and taught about their, even, their own death. Let's look at just a couple of examples uh, that clearly state that Jesus is coming again. Now, just a, as a way of uh, warning, we're going to move around a lot on, with Scripture. There is a, a ton of available things that we can look at. Um, we'll look at a couple here, and then... As we go through the rest of these aspects, they will also reinforce what we're going to say here. But John 14, 3. I think one of these weeks we should do like a sword drill. Every time we switch, we should. You guys know what a sword drill is? If you don't, come and ask me afterwards. Uh, John 14, 3. This is Jesus talking. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, and that where, that where I am, you may be also. Um, and then over to, to Hebrews chapter 9. That's towards the end of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The return of Christ is a certainty. It is not a matter of if, but instead, but instead when. Now if we are certain that Jesus came to earth the first time as a baby in that manger in Bethlehem, then we must believe that he will come again as he said. God promised throughout the Old Testament that he would send the Messiah to earth. 
and he came through on that promise, correct? Likewise, God has promised throughout the New Testament that Jesus will come again. So we know that he will once again come through on this promise. Uh, But I'll be honest with you, I must confess that while I have complete certainty from Scripture that this event will take place, I just don't think about it as often as I should. Um, The author J.I. Packer uh, wrote in one of his books about kind of this phenomenon. He laid out four reasons why um, we maybe don't think of the second company as much as we should or as the early church did. Uh, I'm going to point out two of them. Uh, he points out that it may be a reaction to some groups who have overemphasized end times, charts, timetables, and observing signs of the last days. And just to, just, just, we're not going to do any charts today. Sorry, I thought about it. We're not going to do charts. Uh, but many have not desired to wade into this murky water. So they have instead tried to not focus on the future at all. He also points out that we live in a time of worldly-mindedness especially among the prosperous Christians of the West. We think less and less about the better things that Christ will bring us at his reappearance because our thoughts are increasingly absorbed by the good things we enjoy here. Both views are unhealthy. And God forgive me for participating in these errors in thinking at times. As we study the Bible, we must seek to learn all that we can about what it says about the future while not seeing or while not losing the forest because of the trees. We cannot get so bogged down with the details that we lose sight of the glorious reality that Jesus is is coming again, and that is abundantly clear, no matter what we believe about what leads up to that. Also, we must battle the idea that it is possible to experience our best life now, and we'll do that with the words of Scripture. What is coming in the day, when what is coming in the day, uh, when we see and experience Jesus face to face will make all thoughts of the here and now seem trivial. Jesus' return is certain, but when will it happen is uncertain. So when we ask the question, when will Christ return? We must answer honestly as scripture does. We don't know, but it can happen at any time. It will happen imminently. Uh, It is important to define a, a couple of terms that often get used interchangeably, but actually probably shouldn't be imminent and immediate. Immediate speaks of taking effect without delay, which does not allow for any intervening events. But imminent speaks of impending. That is, it may happen at any time. Some other events can intervene, but this does not affect the fact of the return. A.T. Pearson, a pastor and author from the late 19th century, said it this way. He said, imminence is the combination of of two conditions that seem opposite, certainty and uncertainty. By being an imminent event, we mean one which is certain to occur at some time, uncertain at what time. Does that make sense? Sure, that's great. We'll see what scripture says, because it's actually clear. Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 44. It says, therefore you, mu- you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then look at uh, in chapter 25, verse 13. 
It says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And then turn over to Mark chapter 13. And look at verses 32 and 33. It says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So the knowledge of Jesus' return is not for us to know. That is evident. Uh, But we know with certainty that it will happen. Now, just a little note here. If you ever hear someone say that they have figured out when Jesus will return, run as fast as you can from them. Um, They are, for one, contradicting scripture, which is kind of serious, uh, but you also look utterly foolish, as a lot of people have over the, over the past history who have attempted to do so. Um, turn now to the very end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to read, start reading verses uh, 6 and 7. And see as we, as we kind of jump through the end of this passage if there's a, uh, a common word or theme. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now look at verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, what is that common word you, we read over and over? Soon. Now, this was written about 2,000 years ago. Now, many individuals struggle with the fact that it doesn't appear to have happened as we define soon. Now, isn't it great when the Bible, like, directly answers the objections that we have? Turn back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Just a few pages back into 2 Peter. Let me do something to grab some water. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, a chunk here, but it's worth it. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say... Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word that the heavens and earth, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as, as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. That's kind of me. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here, Peter is answering questions at th- that time, which is only probably 30 to 40 years after the ascension of the Lord. They were scoffing the promise of Christ's second coming because it had not happened yet. How does Peter respond? He reminds them of some very important truths. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. With the Lord one day is, as a, thousand, is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God is right on schedule. Jesus will come again at the exact right time. Now let's investigate how Jesus will return. Once again, let's jump back to, kind of keep your finger towards the end there in Revelation 19, but we're going to jump back to Matthew 25, 31 for just a moment. Matthew 25, 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. When Christ returns, he will come in glory. Now the Nicene Creed adds that very important phrase, with glory. Now it very much mirrors um, some of the things in the Apostles' Creed, but here it says, And he shall come again, with glory to judge both the quick and the dead. Now, to turn to see what this glorious return looks like, let's turn back now to Revelation chapter 19. Starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Christ returns, he will come in glory. He came in humility at his first coming as our Savior and Redeemer. His second coming is a different story. This coming is marked by a a visible display of the glory, majesty, and power of King Jesus. Um, We don't usually see this Jesus depicted on our flannel graphs as kids, but it is a reality that Scripture clearly states. When he comes from where he is now seated as the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord, he will come as the one to whom every knee shall bow. 
He will come as the one from whom every tongue will confess as Lord. And he will come as the righteous judge of humanity. The creed says he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now it is interesting to note that Jesus, who was judged unrighteously, will come back and be the one true righteous judge. When when Jesus judges humanity, there will be no one who can claim that his decrees are unjust. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 25. Starting now in verse 32. Before him he will before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are, who are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see a stranger? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you have done it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and gave, and gave me and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus will righteously and decisively judge all of mankind. He will separate them into two groups, the sheep and the goats. The sheep who are considered living only because of the mercy of God. They are those individuals who hold no righteousness of their own, But because of Christ's work of redemption on the cross, they are now counted righteous in God's sight. And because of that, they are alive because of Jesus. The goats are those who continue in unbelief and are dead in their sins. They are condemned already, and at the end of this, we'll completely agree with Jesus' righteous judgment. Christ's sheep will go into everlasting blessedness in heaven, and the goats will suffer everlasting torment in hell. In both, the display of God's great mercy and the display of God's great wrath, he will be glorified. His return is certain. It is imminent. And it will be glorious. 
His judgment of mankind is, will be perfect. He will gather those who, have, who he has saved through his great mercy to enjoy eternity with him. And he will display his wrath against those who are dead in their sins by sending them to experience torment in hell. The question then here today is, how shall we then live? Let me finish with three suggestions, and these are not all-encompassing, but first, we must wait with hope. Um, I'd like to turn to Titus chapter 2. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. I'll just read these. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And here's the key, the key verse. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In this passage, there are two different appearings. The first appearance is Christ's first coming, when he came as our gracious Savior and Redeemer. Then in verse 13, we see that the second appearing is characterized by his glory. That is his second coming. Because we now, because we know that he will come again in glory, we can wait for that blessed hope because of Christ's redeeming work in our lives. God, God has given us much information about the future. Now, he didn't give us these passages and this information to confuse us or frustrate us. He gave us this information so we can have hope. We know that this is not the end of the story here on earth. And as a child of God, the end of the story that is coming is, in the fullest sense, happily ever after. We will not experience sadness or pain, and we'll experience an unhindered relationship with King Jesus. It is because of that that we can, as 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, be always of good courage, no matter what hard times we find ourselves in now. We know that these trying times are temporal, temporary, but life with Jesus will be eternal. So we wait patiently with hope. Second, we must watch with expectation. Um, after Eli and I were first married, I worked at Shepherds for about a year. Now, if you don't know, Shepherds is a, a ministry down in Union Grove that cares for individuals with mental disabilities. A story that I heard many times while working there was about the, the need for the staff to constantly be cleaning the insides of the windows in the residential wings. The residents who lived there had such an expectation of, that, of Christ's return that they would spend much of their time each day looking out the windows up into the sky, watching for Jesus to come again. And in the process, the windows were filthy. That's not just a cutesy story. We should live like that. The reality of Christ's return should always be before us and in the front of our minds. We must watch with expectation. His return is a certainty. It will happen in his good time. Until then, we must yearn for that day. If we think back to Revelation chapter 22 that we just read, verse 20, uh, we should say, surely, 
uh, he, say, well, he says, surely I'm coming soon, and we should say then, amen, come Lord Jesus. This world is not our home. We need to live as, exile, as exiles in a foreign land. We must not be so consumed and contented with the comforts of this world that we stop looking forward to the future that is ours with, with Jesus. We should constantly be saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Finally, we must work. So wait with hope, watch with expectation. We must, we must work as servants in the kingdom. Back at that, that passage in Titus chapter 2, uh, verses 13 and 14, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, God, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are now his people. The result, then, is that we, as God's children, need to be zealous for good works. We do not work to gain salvation, but because we have been saved, we now work. We've get, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 says, uh, And Jesus said to them, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now here's the command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We've got a job that we need to do until the end of the age, and that is to go and spread the great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to actively share the good news of the, of the gospel to people in our lives. We're then, to, we're then given the encouragement that we are not alone in this task. He will be with us, until he is literally with us at the end of the age. That's, that's an encouraging, uh, encouraging passage, and it gives us our marching orders. First um, Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13 says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. The thing that we're supposed to work at is abounding in love for one another and for all. Now I know that I am easy to love, but there are some people, I'm not going to point any fingers, that it takes work to love them as Christ commands. We need to be willing to, be out, to go out of our way to show love and preference for one another. We need to intentionally be looking for ways to serve one another. Also, in this as this passage points out, we are to pursue holy living. Obviously, we are not alone in this effort, for the Spirit is at work in our lives as believers to work to sanctify us. But we are also supposed to put in the effort to live a godly and disciplined life. So, can you confess with me this great truth? that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. His return is certain, it's imminent, and it will be glorious. My prayer is that this future reality will impact our life now. We wait with hope, watch expectantly, and work as servants of King Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we just thank you for this, this time that we've had to study your word on this topic of your second coming. And as I've confessed already in this time that I, I don't focus on this, I don't think about it as I should. Please forgive me for my, my shortcomings. And Lord, I just pray that today and the rest of the days this week and going forward that this would be a, a constant reminder of the fact that you are coming again. The things of this world are temporary. They are they're fleeting. But what we have in, in you for our future is filled with hope and something that I should look forward to each and every day. Lord, I just pray that that would be the same for each of these individuals here. That if we as, believe, that we as believers would have great hope in what lies ahead. And honestly, Lord, I, I pray that if there are those here that, that can honestly not say that they know you as Lord and Savior, that there is a reality for, for the end for, for them as well. And Lord, I just pray that they would consider carefully today where they stand with you. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us as we go. I, keep, Lord, I pray that you would just keep this truth always before us. In your name.